0: This podcast is brought to you by SageMotion. SageMotion enables movement training through wearable haptic feedback. Sign up for a demo
1: at SageMotion.com demo and write boom in the comment box.
2: Welcome to Zoom.
0: <laughs> Sometimes I just like to throw bullets up.: Yeah. And I don't know what to say. And then Hannah doesn't say anything. She just (laughs) stares at me and waits for me to say something.
1: (laughs) But it's really great that you can't see that because this is just audio right now. (laughs) Okay. So welcome to Boom. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. (laughs) And today we had an amazing chat with Professor Robin Queen. She is a professor at Virginia Tech in the Department of Biomedical Engineering and Mechanics. Anne is the principal investigator of the Kevin P. Granada Biomechanics Lab. And that title is so, like, even though it feels long, it's short because she does so many different things. Yeah, yes. And so many different projects. We talk about everything from ACL re-injury and how to prevent that or how to understand why that happens to race intersecting with biomechanics and everything in between.
0: <laughs> yeah, how she manages so many different projects and manages projects that are about are undergoing studies with hundreds of people with mm-hmm. in-person evaluations and yeah. uh, in a clinic. So, it's was really amazing to talk to her and learn from her. I feel like we've wanted to have her on for so long, so mm-hmm. it's finally it was great to finally be able to do that.
1: Yeah, she's so humble and very eloquent and succinct, too, with her answers, so we appreciated all of that.
0: Yeah. Before we get started with the interview, we wanted to ask that if you enjoy Boom, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well.
1: Yeah, we've both shared it with our moms, so share it with your mom if you can. (laughs) It's Father's Day coming up, or Father's Day just happened, actually. Yes. So it's a great gift for your father. For your father. Mm -hmm. (laughs) we are so so grateful for our listeners we're grateful that some of you do share boom and enjoy it and we want to give a special shout out to biomech jess who left the following review hannah and melissa are great interviewers and they cover a wide range of biomechanics applications dinosaurs running shoes car accidents your skin all topics that include biomechanics and are covered on boom. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Biomech Jess, for rating us and your awesome review. Yeah, I think the dinosaur episode remains a fan favorite. So if you haven't listened to that episode, check that out. Professor Hutchinson. Yes. (laughs) I have a funny story from this weekend that I'm going to share with you. So I officiated my first wedding. Woo! Yes, Yes. So I married my cousin, which was Funny for me to you officiate <laughs> and marry your cousin. <laughs> so. I married my cousin and his now wife. Okay, there we go.
1: That's the full sentence. Um,
0: and that was my starting joke for officiating. That I think really set the stage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was it was such a cool experience. Yeah, I had never done that before. I didn't know what to expect, but I learned a lot, and it was nerve wracking to give a talk that wasn't on science. I feel like I'm so used to, well, you yeah. know, presenting on my work and what I know. And so that was a really, really cool experience. But after, I was chatting with a uh, few girls in the bathroom. You know how we do that sometimes. Obviously, We'd yeah. We all of our friends I mean, there's as we're like, waiting in line for the bathroom. Yeah. And... <laughs> They said that they liked my speech and one of them was like, yeah, you should be a podcaster. You have a podcaster voice. And the other one was like, yeah, we were saying that if you had a podcast, we would totally listen. And I was like, wow. Today is your lucky It's so funny that you should say that because I do have a podcast. And they were like, oh, great. What's it on? And I was like, biomechanics. And they were like, oh, we probably won't listen to that. I was like, ouch. I mean, I guess it's pretty niche, but like, I see you moving about. Like, you obviously yes. do biomechanics all the time.
1: Yeah, I think we need to rebrand biomechanics. We need to rebrand a biomechanics, bit.
0: and we're calling on you, our, our yeah, listeners, give us, to help how us. How do you re-brand. describe
1: biomechanics to your friends?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to share, boom, share, you know, communications of biomechanics mm-hmm. to help it feel like something approachable, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, like with Fitbits and like all these wearable devices, and people starting to measure their movement, I think like you can understand wanting to measure your movement, which I feel like is a lot of biomechanics.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, so share your ways. Yeah,
1: that you share biomechanics. Because we're with us.
0: making biomechanics cool <laughs> <laughs> to everyone, not just us.
1: <laughs> it already is cool. We're just sharing the cool. <laughs> exactly. Coming to a girl's
0: bathroom near you. <laughs> Um, well, with that, um we have a bit of boom for you. Bit boom. boom. Bit boom.
1: So, I like in this episode we talk about race, which can be a sensitive issue, but I think that the way that Robin Queen approaches it and her research and how she's been so thoughtful about how yeah, how to approach it and how to support students who are approaching it, how to bring in other thought leaders into that space and Mm -hmm. was just like really insightful. And I think oftentimes I feel... Like, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. And I think
0: for racial racial injustices,
1: for racial injustices, exactly. And so it was really cool to see how she's integrating that with her work in biomechanics and just like, yeah, just like how to learn, how to be open, how to be adaptable and how to be, yeah, how to really have a good impact.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was like pretty amazing to hear from her because I think especially in recent years it's really brought out mm-hmm. how significant these injustices are and especially as it pertains to health equity and researchers in the scientific and medical communities i think have really begun to prioritize more studies mm-hmm. to understand these inequities and in fact a recent paper so it's published in annals of family medicine in april of 2022 <laughs> this year I 2022 2022 by Llet and co-authors which outlines pitfalls and recommendations for using race in health science research.
1: So how did we look at race I guess before this why why was this so significant?
0: Yeah, exactly. So western scholars historically conducted race as purely or constructed race as purely biologic. And I think sometimes Mm. as engineers, we were talking about how often we want to like categorize things or have some structure or systematic way of doing things and measuring things. But we know that race is actually a poor proxy for biological or genetic difference. Mm. Um, But it still remains important because of how it impacts social Mm. relations. So the big takeaway from this paper was this understanding that common measures of race and ethnicity are simply a proxy value for exposure to the larger issue of systemic racism and race shouldn't be used as a measure of biological Mm -hmm. difference Mm -hmm. and one example we were talking about earlier was actually in my sit to stand study we had a large sample over 400 people that we analyzed and we could actually look at differences in sit to stand movement patterns across different races Mm -hmm. and we did in fact see that Across the different races, people leaned further forward or less further forward, depending on, yeah, what race they were. But the conclusion, I think, and what this is getting at is that we aren't saying that because you're this race, you move differently or like you move differently because of of being this race. But there are some underlying health or other factors that may be contributing to this that we're not capturing, Mm -hmm. but this difference in, in how we're moving may just be one way to sort of capture mm. these proxies or is representing mm. those differences if that makes sense
1: yeah and i think that's like an important lesson in all of science right like and i think generally how we approach science but sometimes i forget this that science is an end-all be-all we're not drawing hard lines necessarily around everything right, right? Like, there's like we aren't a lot of times we're making correlations, not causations. So mm-hmm. I think this is a great example of like how to yeah, how to use that framework to better approach how we do this type of science and how we approach it sensitively.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think Robin's work and the work of these mm-hmm. authors really are opening the door for many mm. more future studies to further evaluate this. And we just wanted to wrap up this bit of boom with some of the recommendations that they make, which are applying appropriate theoretical frameworks Mm -hmm. that can model the social structural factors that may be interacting with particular diseases, having more diverse and inclusive study samples and collaborating with the communities involved with Mm -hmm. the research.
1: I love that. Yeah. So just like, let's think differently. Let's include lots of different people and let's, yeah, really just talk to each other.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think you'll hear those themes too. Yeah, our our with our interview. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for an awesome bit of boom. Thank you for being awesome. <laughs> now we'll jump into our interview. All right, today we are here talking with Professor Robin Queen. Robin is a professor at Virginia Tech in the Department of Biomedical Engineering and Mechanics, and she is the principal investigator of the Kevin P. granada Biomechanics Lab. Thank you so much for being with us here today.
2: Thank you, guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it.
0: As too. (laughs) Well, Robin,
1: we are going to ask you our first question, which we love to ask people. When did you first know you wanted to be a biomechanist?
2: It's a great question. And I actually thought a lot about this (laughs) because I wasn't sure that I had a great answer. Because (laughs) I think I sort of fell into biomechanics. It was one of those things Mm. that I went to my undergrad thinking I wanted to do orthotics and prosthetics work. And then Stumbled into a soft tissue lab to start with uh, for a little while and then ended up in a physical therapy lab doing kind of rehab based work. So I'd say probably the sort of junior to senior year of undergrad is when I figured out, well, when I actually learned what biomechanics was and that it was (laughs) an option. And then ultimately I ended up deciding that that's really what I wanted to do because it kind of brought together the interests that I had. In kind of healthcare and orthopedics with, and sports with the kind of mechanics that I really liked to do from an engineering perspective. So.
0: Yeah. Was there something that initially drew you to more of orthotics and prosthetics?
2: Um, I don't know what actually drew me there. I mean, I, when I started to try and figure out what I wanted to, to be when I grew up, which is still something I struggle with doing, <laughs> um, I wanted to be originally an orthopedic surgeon. And so, and then I came to realize that there was just a lot of repetition in their day-to-day and what they did, and that didn't Mm -hmm. appeal to me as much. So I had the opportunity to go spend some time with an orthotist and kind of watch the work that he was doing. And that was really interesting to me. But ultimately, it, it was another one of those spaces where you were just making things. You weren't really developing and creating new things unless you had to kind of go off script for something very specific for a patient. So... I think that was the draw. The draw has always been to help people. The draw has always been to improve the way that people were able to move. And again, whether that was ortho or then kind of this little foyer into orthotics or now what, what I do now, it's always been about trying to find ways to help
1: make people move better. I think that was probably the most succinct answer we've ever had to that <laughs> question. So thank you for thinking about it and, yeah, and, like really being thoughtful.
0: Yeah. And we love to hear that. I think mm-hmm. it always brings us back to that theme, too, of why we're in it, and it's to help people, help people yeah. move better. So it's such a nice reminder of that and, and something that we all share together as biomechanists. So. Can you tell us a bit about the current projects you have going on in your lab?
2: Sure. There's a number of projects that we're doing. One of my goals really is to allow my students to choose the things that they're passionate about and the things that they really Mm -hmm. want to do. So the projects kind of run this fairly large gamut, but it's anything that I feel like I can help them with and or find collaborators that really do have the expertise that they need to be able to to do the project. But the big ones, we have some NIH studies looking at uh, anterior cruciate ligament injuries and recovery and trying to build sort of large scale prognostic models for determining who's at risk for re-injury when they go back into sport. And so that's a Mm. sort of a a long-term project that'll take us a few years to get through. We have to collect 360 patients for that one. So we'll be at it for a bit. Luckily we have a a fantastic (laughs) collaborator, um, Joe Hart, who's down at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So we're we're kind of splitting the numbers on that, but that's kind of the biggest one. Uh, But we're doing work uh, with kids with cerebral palsy with a collaborator of mine up at the neuromotor rehab clinic looking at gate initiation and then also the development of some sensor technologies to help with the smaller, the smaller little ones. Um, We just uh, purchased a Thea system, which has been great. It's going to allow us to do some fun stuff outside the lab in the field. And so I have some students that are really interested in looking at back in my, back in my history, I did a lot of work in cleats. And so we're going to go back and do some, some more cleat work and just had a student who graduated who was working on looking at the upper the stiffness of the upper of a running shoe and how that impacted performance so we kind of run the gamut between the sports stuff and and then what i consider the the, the core of the orthopedics work that i like to do i have another student that just finished her master's work that was looking at some questions of racial differences in in plantar loading as it relates to the potential development of diabetic foot neuropathy uh, because it was an interest of hers, and then also research engagement in that population. So she's uh, moving on to a PhD in engineering education. So it was a good way to kind of wow. blend oh, cool. her two worlds. But we could talk all day. But there's a, there's a number yeah. of projects that are going on, but they do very much get, span from kind of young kids with cerebral palsy up all the way up to some joint replacement work that we're still doing. And then some work in postpartum women looking at loading and load asymmetry and carrying and lifting. So
1: a little bit of everything. Wow. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just simple. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yeah. Well, that's awesome. And uh, I think we as students, or I guess former students now, per- super appreciate being able to figure out what your passion is, try a bunch of different things, and, and, yeah, really go for what you actually care about versus, yeah, having something that you have to do. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. How do you manage, like, such a span and range of mm-hmm. projects? Is that difficult?
2: I would say when I first started, it was difficult. I think I've gotten kind of used to it. I don't know that Mm -hmm. my life would feel right if I was doing one or two things. We've always Mm -hmm. had a number of projects going on. Some people say it's a little crazy. You can sort of see the board (laughs) behind me. That's one of two that I use to kind of keep track of projects and where (laughs) things are. And then the students give me weekly updates and things, so I kind of keep it straight. But, you know, I think for me... I've always really struggled to find one thing and it only be one thing that I'm interested yeah. in. So yeah. having the variety of projects allows me to continue to challenge myself and to create collaborative groups that allow me to continue to learn mm-hmm. as I work along with students in areas that weren't necessarily my initial passion, but are things that they really want to do. And so it it, it constantly challenges me, and I think that's why I like having kind of the breadth of projects that we do. It's also mm-hmm. great for the students because it allows them to see the scope of what you can do within biomechanics and that it's not just one thing. Mm, It really mm. does go across a a fairly large spectrum.
0: Yeah. It must help them stay motivated as well to feel Mm -hmm. like they can pursue something that they're really excited about.
2: Yeah. And I'd be remiss to not say I have a a colleague, Sarah Arena, who works alongside me in the lab. So she does um, help a whole lot with some of those projects. Um, Mm -hmm. And we recently um, added a postdoc to the, to the lab. Woo. Um, and so that's been huge <laughs> for helping, kind of with with managing the the projects and things like that. So it's definitely a team. It's not just. I mean, more recently it's become a team. Originally it was just me, but uh, it's it's great to have to have some other people who are able to to bring their expertise into the space as well to really help the students with with what they want to do.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. We actually had seen a, a little bit of your work about your research on race, and we just wanted to talk about that for a minute because it's not necessarily something we get to talk about on Boom a lot. So before maybe talking about some of the findings of that project, we just wanted to talk about what the implications are for looking at differences between races or or even like this kind of expands to like looking at sensitive populations. How do you yeah, how do you deal with those implications and think about them?
2: No, it's a great question. And I went into the first project, well, so I did one project quite a number of years ago, back when I was Mm -hmm. still at Duke. And and that was born out of a project that already existed and some data that already existed, and then took a good number of years off from kind of doing that work, mainly because Mm -hmm. I felt like I needed to learn a little bit more before I jumped back into that space. Mm -hmm. And so I had the pleasure here and the honor of working with one of our senior sociology professors who really did help me to begin to understand how to conceptualize some of this. And it was, it was a great experience. Dr. Hill, who's now at, where she's, she's at MUSC at the moment, but she will eventually transition to a faculty. She's a postdoc now down there, was the one that brought this back into my space as a, as a doctoral student, because it was a passion that she had. And we had long conversations and I said, we need to get people with an expertise in this space to help us with defining what we're going to look at and how we're going to identify different things. And, and he was, uh, Dr. Reed, Dr. Warney Reed is the sociologist. He was fantastic in helping me understand how to really assess race and, and being very careful about describing it as a social construct and understanding that it was at times a proxy for other things and how we needed to really, walk that path as we were going through that research. And we had some fantastic debates in her committee meetings. I (laughs) felt horrible for her because they weren't about her project. They were really about how are we going to define race? And when you put a group of people together that span, we had an anthropologist, a sociologist, three engineers, and um, an exercise physiologist on her committee. And so, Talk about team. Yeah, we, yeah. I had to, we had to bring them all in, but we had some really interesting conversations because there was a lot of kind of the basic science side and the engineering side that wanted to define race
0: with a Very test, like systematically. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, they wanted, a, they wanted and
2: yeah, they yeah. wanted some sort of test to go like yes or no, and it was fantastic yes. yeah. having the anthropologist uh, Dr. Schmidt from Duke and then and then Dr. Reed in that conversation to really get everybody to understand that it's not, it's not simple. It's not easy. So we've decided to to let it be a self-identified measure. And we allow the participants to identify the racial category or categories to which they believe that they fit. And so try in every paper that we write to, to reiterate that it's um, that it is a social construct, that it has more to do with community than it does um, with biology necessarily. And then, understand and the limitations when we're trying to write those that that often what we're measuring by looking at race is not is not biologic it, it is something else and again we're at the beginning of this at least in, in, for me of you know how do we really look at this but trying to understand it from the standpoint of what has been historically reported as racial health disparities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. beginning mm-hmm. to understand how do we as biomechanists begin to walk into that space and say is it really that, or is there something else? Yeah, um, yeah. And so, again, not not believing that we have all the answers to this, but just wanted to start to right. ask some of those questions to be able to to dig a little bit deeper and to understand that it is important, if nothing else, to to recognize that there are differences. Some of those are, are based on on the social construct that we're going to use or call race. But um, I don't think right. it's clear. I don't think it's an easy one, and it's. It is challenging to right, hand yeah. review. When we can right. Review. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, because there are all these underlying, um, like you're saying, health disparities and other things that can be underlying these differences and things that. We might not be capturing or, or know that we yeah. need to be measuring. But like you're saying, the fact that there are differences and, and I, I really liked the conclusions of your paper, which all really emphasize the fact that we need to have more diverse, racially mm-hmm. and ethnically diverse samples in biomechanics because you are seeing these differences. And, and even if they are due to some underlying factors, it still is showing that the samples that we're getting, they're too small to be able to detect these differences. First of all, and then typically, they aren't very diverse. So I think those points come across really strong in those papers. And I think set up, just set up, I guess, for future work really well and and the importance for that.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and thank you. I think, I think of this as where we were a few decades ago with the early sex-based differences work that we we all began mm, yeah, to do, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and that took a little time for everybody to sort of figure out. How, and that's a little that's much clearer in most cases. Although mm. now I know personally in the lab here we've asked a lot, like how how do we begin to really look even at sex and how do we are we looking at sex or are we looking at gender and how are we really quantifying that and what does that mean and so mm-hmm. i've had long conversations about well what are we really asking people when we put them into a group is it phenotypic right is it what we're seeing or is mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. a question to them about you know what was the sex assigned at birth or how are they identifying right and those are different things and therefore potentially could have an impact on on the results that we get and so trying to be very thoughtful about how we <laughs> How we ask those questions in a way that I know I was not when I started mm-hmm. my career. So I, I try and uh, th- and think of those on a continuum of you know there's always a a space we're trying to push into that we may not have all the answers for, but it's mm-hmm. important to begin to ask the questions so that we know what else we need to do and and who who else we need to bring in to partner with us mm-hmm. to begin to understand those. And so again, had that the pleasure of working with those two gentlemen and then the project I mentioned briefly from the graduate student that just finished had a different group of people that came in to help with that one. And, and one was a um, out of our, our vet school actually, but that's where public health sits for us. And so she's an expert in public health. And so brought her in and then another faculty who does engineering education work really to understand the engagement piece, because that was something mm-hmm. that came out of the projects with, with Dr. Hill was we struggled to get mm. people for the African American cohort, and understanding mm-hmm. what that was about and why, and so that's that's where uh, that's where Julia's Julia Brisbane's project came next was okay. What are some of those factors that are that are keeping people from being willing to engage in research? And I guess we were very, I was very surprised and that work will come out here, I hope soon. But I was very surprised that still in younger African Americans there is a hesitancy to be involved in research. I I always kind of expected it in our older populations, but I did not expect it as as much in a college-aged and and on-campus population. So still a lot Mm -hmm. to learn about how we engage people in research and and really start to get those more diverse groups into studies.
0: Mm -hmm. A lot Mm -hmm. of work to be done. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned still seeing that in students on campus as well, because I guess initially I would think in terms of getting to a biomechanics lab or access to that and and transportation and all these other factors. But when those things are already covered, but there's still a lack of engagement, um, I think that's really saying something and definitely a reason to investigate that more. And I don't know if you can share any of those factors or give an example of maybe one of the factors or if, if, if it's too early, you know, waiting to, for the paper to be out, then that's totally
2: fine. No, I mean, I, 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 it's really Julia's work and I, I will give her yeah, all the credit yeah. for that. But, you know, I think a lot of them had to do still with historical distrust and mistrust of medical research. With Dr. Hill's project, I sort of understood it because we had some blood draws in her study and because we were looking at, at some physiologic measures. Hmm. Julia's study... Was just with an email plate and some surveys, so we weren't really asking them to do much in the way of, of anything that I would have perceived as being challenging, or or would have thought about some of the concerns that that have historically been there. Uh, but the, based on the results of, of some of the surveys, it does it does seem to stem a lot from being thought of still as as guinea pigs and as as not being potentially treated equitably to, the, to their white counterparts in studies and some of the historical things with the Tuskegee studies and things like that. So mm-hmm. I think there's just work to be done uh, because it's going to be really hard for us to address some of the racial health differences that we see mm-hmm. when there's still that mistrust and distrust. And I think mm-hmm. that came that has come forward again as we've gone through, through COVID and just the differences in seeking treatment and being willing to be part of that conversation. So Again, still work to be done on that, and I, you know, she's moving over to engineering ed, so we'll have to see who wants to take that <laughs> next step on. But I'm really excited for the work she will do as a, as a future colleague in educating our future engineers in that space.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I love how you're highlighting sort of where all these different people that you're bringing into this team are coming from, like so many Mm -hmm. different perspectives and ones that we don't or I don't traditionally think about as being part of biomechanics anthropology, right? Like, but they're so crucial to this work. And so I'm just curious. I also want to say that I appreciate that you said we had arguments. Like these are not easy, like you're acknowledging these are not easy things to talk about. Like, these are things we have to wrestle with and I think that is hard work. That is work we all like need to be doing. So I'm curious for those who want to be doing that work and want to start exploring things like this. Do you have any advice on who to talk to, how to get started? Like just from all of your experience in doing this, I think that could be helpful.
2: No, it's a great question. And I don't know that I have the like I don't think there is one. Right, answer. You don't have a formula. <laughs> there's no, no, no formula. Right, <laughs> but, there's none of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> What I would say is it's about starting conversations. And that's been something for me across my career that's been incredibly important. I I always walk into a situation realizing that whoever I'm getting ready to talk to is an expert in something that I'm not. And so understanding that it's important for me to sit and listen and learn uh, and to continue to learn from them has always been really important. So some of those relationships have existed for decades, and yes, I'm not old, but yeah, some have been decades <laughs> old, and some are are new. And I think each time it's about trying to f- to weave a story that makes sense and brings the, the right group of people into the room. A lot of times it's a it, it, well, it's been it's happened different ways. I'll be very honest. Sometimes it's me reaching out and saying, you know. I want to start this project. Do you have an expertise in this area from a website or from whatever? Sometimes it's the students. Dr. Reed came into the space because Charisse took a course from him when she was here. And she's like, I took this really cool course on racial health disparities, which she had told me she was going to take. But I was like, oh, amazing. And I kind of wish I could go sit in the class, but he's now retired. (laughs) So I cannot. But he's fantastic. So that was how he ended up with us was she took a taken a class With him. And then when we started down her project, I said, Can you reach out to him? I would love to sit down, the three of us, and just talk this through. Mm -hmm. I need to have a better understanding of this. I need to, you know, so that I can explain it to my engineering colleagues in a way that. They're going to be able to accept that we're not going to do a blood test or something and and make a definitive Mm. decision on that. So I think it's about being open and it's about being a little bit vulnerable, which I know we as scientists also don't talk about. But (laughs) I, I am completely happy to go into a room and say, "Okay, I don't know this. This is not my space. This is not what I do. I'm really here to learn from you. And we'll mm-hmm. have some great conversations. Usually the project is not solidified day one. It usually takes multiple conversations mm-hmm. and multiple meetings to come to it. They ultimately end up being fantastic colleagues that I'll call on for other projects or other things that we have going on. So it's about for me, it's always been about building a community. And that's what I try and, and get the the students to see while they're here is it's really hard to do any of the work that we're trying to do. In isolation, we need them. I mean, beyond the ones I've talked about, I've also had psychologists that are part of our group, and, and, and physical therapists, and athletic trainers, and orthopedic surgeons, and our right. Like, it, it really depends on the question we're asking. And having the right people at the table makes all the difference in the world to be able to, to grapple with the things that aren't easy. I don't know that that was a great suggestion, but just being willing to go out and ask uh, for help and start to, to have conversations with people, I think, is the, is the best way for me that I have found.
1: Yeah, openness and humility. I think those are Yeah, and vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, like right, I think starting there. It's a great start, great advice. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And this has been yeah, just a, f- a fantastic conversation about this and I think one that's been different from a lot of the conversations we've had so far, so I'm sure people are really going to learn a lot from it and really appreciate that you're so open and willing to talk about it. So thank you for that. We wanted to shift to the other area of focus in your lab, which is studying re-injury prevention in people with ACL reconstruction surgery. Before we talk about your lab's findings, we wanted to briefly talk about why people with ACL reconstruction are at such a large risk of re-injury. So recent papers have said about 30% of athletes that return to sport after ACL reconstruction experience a second ACL tear, which is pretty huge. So we're wondering if you could share a little bit more about why that happens.
2: I don't think we know exactly why that happens. So that's a lot of the work that's being done in that space (laughs) uh, right now. But, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the way we think about rehab and recovery. And again, a lot of this is just my sort of thoughts on this is not based in research at this moment. But we focus a lot on the knee, specifically the one that was injured. And we don't really look holistically at the individual. Some people do, Mm -hmm. some people don't. But when we look at the return to sport metrics that are used by our surgeons, they aren't usually based in a metric that can be measured. They're usually like time or, you know, how the person feels or a whole host of things. Uh, There are no set criteria, especially that are, that are put out by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. So it's kind of a moving mm. target. Wow. Mm. And so different surgeons will release at different times and for different reasons. I have my biases in, in what I think are driving the re-injury rates, which is why our research kind of goes down the path that it does. But, you know, I think there's definitely a psychological component to it. We and others have reported on kind of this fear of movement fear of re-injury. And that seems mm-hmm. to be very true, especially of our younger athletes, even though they won't, they won't come out and say it, but when you give them a survey, the answers that they will give you will indicate that they are mm, still a little wow. bit apprehensive about about being hurt again. And I think the other challenge that we're faced with is that that re-injury rate isn't just on the ACL that was previously torn and reconstructed. So that is either the, the, the one that's been injured or it's the contralateral side. It's the oh. other leg. Mm. And so it's a little bit of a a question of, and why I have gone after the questions of symmetry is because there seems to be a, an imbalance. And for decades they've been talking about the imbalance and the quad hamstring ratios and all the other stuff that we've we've looked at, but that doesn't inherently explain why why we had this differential on which side gets re-injured. And so there's a lot of people that are working on trying to to quantify the the why in that. And there's a few different theories. There's not a whole lot of large-scale work in that space. I think the largest study that was done, I don't know, there's like forty participants or so and thirteen or so had a reinjury, right? So you're not talking about a huge number of people. And I think that there's a difference in somebody who reinjures that's what we would call an adolescent. So up to sort of 18 to 21 versus those that are that are older. And then there's the skeletally mature as well.
1: Melissa, I keep thinking about all the ways that we could use the SageMotion system for movement training through wearable haptic feedback.
0: Me, too. It made me think about our in-lab interventions to improve gait symmetry for stroke patients and how awesome it would be if they could access that from their own homes.
1: Definitely. It is so portable, easy to use, and could be personalized for different people. It was so nice to hear from the team, too, directly in our personal demo.
0: Yeah, and our listeners can sign up for their own demo at SageMotion.com demo and write boom in the comment box. And then let us know your ideas for using it.
1: All of those different factors make so much sense and to me I knock on wood have never had an ACL injury but I can imagine the fear and like a lot of those psychological factors around mm-hmm. I mean I'm a pretty clumsy person and I like even if I've fallen in one place I like think about being careful in that place so I can't imagine yeah but then returning to your field or your 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 sport and having to relive those same types of motions and things like that without having any of that fear. But I'm wondering sort of on the other side, what discoveries have y'all made in the field that you can, you know, maybe give to some of our listeners that might help who have had an ACL reconstruction and help them safely return to sport. Maybe not, you know, obviously they've got a whole team of people and orthopedic surgeons and people giving them recommendations. <laughs> right. And that's, I know I understand it can be personal, but are there any, any general, pieces of advice that you've come to or any, any data that could just help. Yeah. yeah, Um, give some understanding.
2: Well, I guess what I'll say is that that this will probably be a compilation of things that not just we have discovered, but sort of globally where where the the field Mm -hmm. sits at this Mm -hmm. point from everything that's out there. What we can I think fairly clearly say is that for the most part, which patients don't want to hear, they need to wait longer than they historically Mm. have been to go back to sport Six months really isn't long enough. It needs to be more like nine to 12. And again, that's hard when you're a teenager to to think about that. But there's some work that's been done, not by us, but by others looking at the healing of the graft itself and and how stable it is and how long that actually takes. And it it takes a little while to do that. I think obviously as long as you can stay in rehab and be compliant with, with the therapy that you're being asked to do, I think compliance has been one of those things that I've struggled with, even in our clinical trials work, is getting people to be compliant with the exercises. It, again, we don't have definitive answers on exactly what, but I do believe that side-to-side symmetry is going to play some role in, in the re-injury, and therefore them being asymmetric is a problem. I think there's definitely a psychological component, really taking the time to rehab well. And then ultimately, I think the goal for us anyway is to get the surgeons to understand that we need to have objective measures that we can mm-hmm. use that can be tested in the clinic, not necessarily bring everybody into a 3D mocap lab, but, but be able to assess their readiness to return with something other than just time itself. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It is hard to, well, compliance is hard generally. And then when you add another no 6 months onto that i mm-hmm. can imagine that it is really difficult to hear that especially as a teen when that time is so critical you know mm-hmm. for the future of your um, career. career in that sport potentially so but then thinking about it more long term you know if you re-injure you injure that one or mm-hmm. tear the other one then that's yeah making it compounding the um, effects. <laughs> so
2: and it's hard at that age to yeah. explain that long-term piece. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Like we absolutely. know
2: that those patients, even with just one are more likely to develop early onset osteoarthritis. So then you're talking mm. about, you know, at the age of 40 or so needing a knee replacement, like it's there, there are consequences, but at 14, 15, you're not thinking about what life is going to be like at 35 or 40. No. So,
0: right. Right. You just hard. want to be back out there playing your sport and with your friends and, yeah, that's really tough. Like you're saying, the more that we're learning and the more that we have objective ways to measure that, you know, maybe that's even easier to explain to someone, too. It's like, well, we need to get this score up to here mm-hmm. and, you know, you're here and so, you know, we'll have to do these exercises or do this type of therapy and we can, like, get you back up to that level in more of a, an objective way. But something that also came up with this project that you mentioned at the beginning is that you're starting a pretty huge project with three or four hundred <laughs> athletes. And I, when you said that, I was just like, wow, this is especially that it seems like these assessments will probably be in person. It sounds like to me, it feels very overwhelming to tackle such a large and long term project. And I'm really curious about your thoughts on approaching that and how you can I guess, think about such a big project in a way that feels more manageable or it feels more encouraging to be able to handle something so, so big.
2: That depends on the day you ask me that question. Sometimes <laughs> Yeah. Honestly, the the numbers, as they always do, came out of power analyses, right? That's what we needed mm-hmm. to do to power mm-hmm. the study in the way we wanted to look at things. Having a fantastic collaborator and making it a multi-center study makes it feel a little easier, although there's complications with running any study at two sites or three or four or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the thing for me that has helped is having one, having a fantastic collaborator who I've worked with and we share a similar ideology on, on where we're, where we're heading mm. and, what, and what we're looking for. But then mm-hmm. also having run some clinical trials has helped understanding kind of the patient components. The one saving grace for me for this one is we see them once in person. And then after that, we track them for 18 months, but that's all done via survey and, and using REDCAP. So yes, there's some chances of missing time points and all of that that we deal with statistically, but we also break it down monthly. So there's a monthly enrollment target that we hope to hit. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Um, and that's that's always tough. And ACLs, for better or worse, are sort of cyclic in when they happen during the year. So we know certain times are gonna be more maybe mm. busier than others in terms of the the recruitment and enrollment. But I you know I think huh. it's a it's a challenge and I think it's important in order to move the field forward to have a large enough sample to really begin Definitely. to say, you know, what's, what's really happening here. And, and are we going to get the number of, and I hate, I always hate saying this, but are we going to get the number of re-injuries that we need to really create mm. the predictive algorithm that we have to have to, to move this forward. But so unfortunately people have to get hurt in order for this to yeah. to really play out, which always feels bad when I have to say it, but it's the reality of being able to, to, to understand the underlying mechanics that, that are leading to that second injury. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And hopefully your research will help future participants not get hurt in future the hope, athletes, right? I should say. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So that number will overall net go overall down. Overall
2: goes down, um, we hope. Yes, yes. exactly,
1: mm-hmm. exactly. And I loved how you opened this question with it. Well, it depends on how oh, you, yeah. um, <laughs> the day you <laughs> ask, which I think kind of gets to our next question of like, can you tell us about a time, yeah, when you feel like things were not going right, or you failed? You could call it that, and just what you learned from it, how you moved on from it, how you change your mindset, or yeah, adapt.
2: A fantastic question, and one I I try not to to think about often, and it's important to think about. <laughs> yeah, I would say in specifically in higher education, I can't speak for my colleagues in industry, but in higher ed, failure or lack of success or whatever word you want to use for it is kind of part of the the deal—it's—it's it's part of what mm-hmm. we we do on a daily basis. That you know, the, the paper's not accepted, the grant's not funded, the class I taught did not go quite how I planned. Right? Like, it just—it's it, <laughs> right. part of the cycle, and it, it's hard. I'm not going to deny that, that there are days that you're like, man, is anything going to go right? Am I ever going to get past this? For me, and <laughs> people have been around me enough to know, you know, when things like that are going wrong for me, it's typically when you find me running somewhere. Because that's how I clear my head. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And I typically run by myself, which is also something that people don't get. You know, you have to find that thing that allows you to kind of recensor and, and put it into perspective. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, I have two kids. Sometimes it's, you know, hey guys, we're going to go well, in the summer, anyway, we're going to go hang out at the pool for the afternoon. I just need a break. Mm-hmm. I need to reset. Like, this isn't working sometimes it's sitting down with colleagues and talking it through and going, okay, what am I not seeing? What is going wrong? Why, you know, why isn't this grant funding? Can you read this for me? Can you take a look at, you know, what I said or this paper isn't it? Right. So really having a community that you can, can rely on I think is huge because doing it completely by yourself is, is unrealistic. There is too much of sort of disappointment failure that comes with this that if you don't have that sense of community, there from family, from friends, from colleagues, I think it, it becomes really challenging. I probably cannot pick out one for you that was particularly bad, but th- there have been a number all the way back to grad school and, and since. Mm. Again, I think it's a daily or weekly thing. I mean, there's something that doesn't work quite right. I have a schedule every day that sort of falls apart usually by, by about <laughs> 11 o'clock. So it's about being flexible yeah. and figuring out kind of what, you know, what are the little things that I can say, okay, I did this today and, and therefore today was a success. And that's that's how I've had to start to frame kind of my day-to-day is, okay, so I had this list of things. If I get through four of them, I'm going to call today good. Sometimes that's like <laughs> I got up and I got to work and everybody, like projects move forward. Maybe it wasn't exactly what I wanted to accomplish that day. But something got done. And so sometimes I just think back on the day and I'm like, okay, what, what actually happened? And sometimes it's not with work. Sometimes the, the little win for me is like, hey, I got up and, and everybody at the house actually got something accomplished, like something went good with the kids at school, right? It may not be me. <laughs> yeah. It may be something external to me or, you know, one of my former students will call and say, hey, I just got this grant. Okay, win. I'll take that. That wasn't my success. That was their success. But yeah. it's still it's still enough to go, okay, look, yeah things, things aren't, things aren't all bad, right? Like there's always something that you can find that's positive in a situation, but yes, I will often go out and run when I get really frustrated. So that's usually, it's usually my go-to, but everybody has a different thing that works for them. I have colleagues that are like, you will not find me running unless something's chasing me. So (laughs) that's not their thing, but to each his own. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I think I appreciate your point that it's personal, although mm-hmm. I mean, Hannah and I can both relate to exercising and running to to clear your head. But I like your point about just finding things to celebrate. And I think this also mm-hmm. goes kind of in parallel with just being grateful for the things that are going well. And I think I like that you think outside of work, too, like maybe Mm -hmm. if things didn't go the way you're expecting at work, but just thinking about the bigger picture. And and I think this changes for me day to day, too, where if like things at work aren't going well, I'm like, okay, what is the bigger picture? What are the other things going on in my life that are going well? But when work is going well, trying to to take the time to appreciate these things are going well and feeling excited about it. Mm -hmm. So being able to sort of like refocus to what's like best serving you in the moment, I think, is kind of one of the takeaways I was hearing from what you're saying. We really loved hearing about some of your work today. You're doing work on so many amazing other <laughs> topics. Uh, if people wanted to follow you and learn more about your work, what is the best way to do that?
2: It depends on how good I'm being on Twitter, but there's always a <laughs> both the lab and then uh, I have a personal Twitter that, that's out there as well. So both of those are options. The lab has a website. I can't be, I'll be very honest and say it's not always kept exactly up to date, <laughs> um, because websites i don't know they're harder for me than like twitter or facebook or any of that
0: yeah yeah, yeah.
2: last year the students created a facebook page but i have not actually been keeping up i don't know if they're posting things to it so i would say twitter <laughs> is probably, probably your best bet with things that are coming out and, and the work that that we're publishing I, I tend to try and get it out through those channels and then usually it'll come out through me or th- or through the lab twitter is probably the, the easiest way i mean Great. there's there's always linkedin and all the other things but Twitter's probably the, the
0: best. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll add those to the show notes so people can easily find you in the lab on Twitter. For our last question, what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics?
2: Oh, that that was a tough one. <laughs> I there's a lot, honestly. I, yeah. Every time I go to a meeting now, I, I was at the American College of Sports Medicine two weeks ago mm. or whenever that was, and uh, – so having a conversation with some colleagues about how I think what one of the things that really excites me is watching the science that's being done by the younger I hate calling myself old but I keep feeling like I am but by the students, by the early career faculty and, and some of the really cool ideas. I mean I think things like markerless motion capture are going to be game changers in what mm-hmm. we're able to do and how we're able to be how we're able to collect data. You know, I think there's a lot of work still to be done in wearables we may get there someday in, in a way that's valid and reliable. I think there's so much that we can begin to do with integrating with our colleagues across different areas. We have not historically done great at engaging you know, our, our exercise physiology colleagues and, and some of the others. So I think that's what's really starting to excite me is watching people begin to bring in kind of the differing uh, perspectives and really mm-hmm. starting to ask some questions that, because we didn't have the technology years ago we weren't able to ask and answer and so mm-hmm. i love i love going to conferences and listening to talks. so i don't get to i don't often get to go to a meeting and that be the only thing i get to do but when i have the opportunity to sit in a session I'm incredibly impressed with the work that's being done by, by students and, and, and junior colleagues and or younger colleagues and junior, I hate that term, but um, <laughs> newer career faculty, not old people like me, but people who are just starting out and are really asking some fantastic questions. So, you know, I think yeah. it's a merging of those two of kind of the technology advances and the great questions that people are asking.
0: I think that's really sweet to hear from our perspective too because I think as through grad school you're going to conferences (laughs) and sometimes it can be a little bit intimidating to share your work but knowing that there's professors and people who are listening who are excited by what you're doing and want to hear about it and want to learn from it and and get new ideas and new perspectives and I think that helps Mm -hmm. also sort of reframe the importance of you know having the the confidence or courage to go to a conference and and present and share your work and get feedback too, and uh, how it can spark new ideas with other people in the field. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely.
1: To echo Melissa's point, like sometimes I think if I'm at a conference presenting and I see like people that I know in the field, big names in the field, that I'm like, oh no, what are they going to think of this? <laughs> That helps to, yeah, that they're excited too by it and excited just to see, I think, just to see people, yeah, sharing their work, even if it's not something directly related to what they do, just it's excitement about, yeah, the field and, yeah, in general.
2: I think it's so. it's exciting to see people passionate about what they do, whether or not that's directly in my area or not. I think it's just great to see people loving what they do and, and being willing to share it. I think it's fantastic. And that's, again, that's what I love about going and I love at conferences seeing you know groups of people just sitting down and kind of just talking about science and again we haven't been able to do that for a few years so the last few meetings that i've gotten to go to in person have been great to just see people beginning to talk and really collaborate around science again and and how we can move the field forward together that's been a lot of fun and and i and i hope that that's where we're going right it's just a, a space where collaboration becomes kind of the norm instead of the, the thing that we all are like, oh, but my idea, I need to keep it, you know, here yeah. and I can't share it. Like, I'd rather see us move in the direction of being willing to share where we are and what we're, what we're thinking about uh, to move the field forward.
1: That's one reason we love Boom. And I think one reason we start like, we were inspired after, you know, like, we we're like, how do we connect? How do we do this? And like, we feel so lucky to get to talk to amazing people like you. So really, thank you so much for sharing your stories, your experiences, your perspectives and, and all the amazing work that you're doing.
2: Well, thank you guys. It's a great, it's a fantastic opportunity for me and, and it's been a lot of fun. So
0: thank you for, for inviting me. It's been great. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much to Robin Queen for taking the time to be on Boom. And if you enjoyed the interview and learned something from the episode, make sure to let us know and share it with someone who you think would find value in it. Now, before we wrap up the episode, let's talk about some failures because I know we've got plenty that have been coming up.
1: <laughs> Lots of fails. Actually, I just thought of a new one that I don't think is a fail, but is a funny way to open this that I want to say hi to Melissa's mom if she's still listening. She told us <laughs> that she loves to listen to Boom, but she – Her commute is 30 minutes, so she doesn't always get through all the way to the end. Yes. So if she made it to this point, hi. (laughs) Thanks, Anna. Research fails. Yes, it does. I'll share a fail because it's a pretty big one, I think, (laughs) related to this episode. (laughs) So for some reason the whole time, I thought we were talking to Robin McQueen.
0: Yeah, I thought Hannah was joking every time she'd say Robin McQueen. <laughs> we're talking to Robin McQueen today. Yeah, and I was like, okay, like, that's funny. I'm not really sure where it came from, but we can go with that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and I guess I was like, ha- I don't know why I just didn't register the correct names.
0: Yeah, because then I found out that you weren't joking. I wasn't You were being joking. 100% serious. I wasn't joking.
1: Yeah, and then when I, like, actually looked at the questions and literature, I realized, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that there was a g- was huge like, error I like, from, like, Lightning McQueen.
0: Like, we don't really yeah. know the root of this. We don't but know where it came it from. it was pretty fun. But it was great. And, and it was a fail. And I got it
1: right right before we started. So. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just in time.
1: <laughs> How about you? Do you have any fails, Lissa?
0: Yes. A good one. So I've talked on the podcast before that we've been working on this instrumented toilet seat. And with the idea being that it will measure – kinematics of how you go from sitting to standing mm. or even are moving on a toilet seat and kind mm. of be a passive way to collect kinematics at home. Mm.
1: Just every time someone goes to the bathroom, you get some yeah, nice data. Yeah, exactly. And yeah.
0: it's always, you know, on the same toilet and a lot of times the same time during the day. Yeah. So we are thinking like this might – and seeing that there are differences in the way we move going from sitting to standing, it it's might be – It's not invasive. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, maybe we could predict falls or track different diseases mm. or things like that. Anyway – that's really far down the line. Right now, we've just built a prototype, and we were submitting an abstract on it to the World Congress of Biomechanics. Woo And Patrick Slade, who is the wrote, he's the first author on this article. He was typing in the details of the abstract, so we put our names in. And this was like late at night. We were like, just like, okay, we should just submit this and we didn't really look at when they were due so (laughs) we filled in all of the necessary details and then we had written an abstract in a different doc and i was like okay we can just copy and paste this over later just like we'll just write toilet stuff in like the main area and he just like actually writes toilet stuff like the words toilet stuff in the main body of the abstract and oh my god we were like yeah we'll do this We'll, we'll just do it tomorrow. Lighter. Yeah. We'll do it tomorrow. Well, <laughs> the portal closes at midnight <gasps> that night. Automatically submits <gasps> whatever you had abstract. In there. Whatever you had in there. Yeah. So we submitted an abstract to the World <laughs> Congress of Biomechanics. Oh, no, no. It was it was to NACOB, I think, actually. North American. The North American Congress on Biomechanics. Okay. Or was it World Co- – I don't know. I think it was North To something American. official. Anyway, <laughs> to a big conference – That simply said toilet stuff. Two words. (laughs) Two
1: words. One of them being toilet, the other being stuff. Yes.
0: I mean, I guess it could have been worse, but it was pretty bad.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I, someone got a chuckle
0: Someone definitely, yeah. And then the email that we had to send to be like, hi, um, <laughs> we sent a two-word abstract to you by mistake. Could we please send a, long, send a longer one? Yeah.
1: That's like when you're, like, tell someone, like, you're trying to, like, be like, don't listen to your voicemail, but can you just delete it? Like, don't yeah, lo- don't, don't listen, listen to, to, to it. it. Just, just yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I accidentally sent a text
0: to you. Don't read it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we were and and uh, yeah, it was mostly more concerned about because we weren't the only people in the abstract, right? Like there were two other people and Mm. our advisor Scott, who I was like, I hope he'll find this to be funny. You know, most days he finds that funny.
1: He gets to see it too,
0: right? And his name is on it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His name's name's on on it. it. Yeah.
1: So he's like, I checked off on toilet stuff.
0: All yeah. Right, we signed Luckily, he was in a good mood the next day, and we we're like, we sent him an email. He was like, "Yeah, it should, it should be fine."
1: We pull a lot so, of pranks on Scott. We better be. Careful.
0: We pulled way too many <laughs> pranks <laughs> yesterday at graduation. Though he fully supported me in dancing and cheering, um, as like. I walked onto the stage for my hooding and everyone else was so serious and then I just like went up and started dancing and he fully committed to wow. dancing with me and I really appreciated that. So. That is the advice we all need in our yeah, lives. Yeah, because we're celebrating. Yeah, like, why are we trying all going to gonna be so serious? Oh, yeah. I don't know how to be serious. It makes me feel uncomfortable so I was like, I think I'll just start raising my hands to the roof, raise the roof in here. Yeah, your hands just like naturally go up. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when I'm in front of a crowd, I'm like, okay, it like- is this party started.
1: <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Well, actually, thankfully, me. yeah, thankfully, well, unfortunately, I should say I didn't get to see you dancing, mm. but because I was late for the ceremony, like for attending the ceremony because I was rushing back from the city and I realized as I parked my car that I didn't even know where the ceremony
0: was. <laughs>
1: But I was going to get there, and Melissa, thank God, I track her location. She tracks my location. I track her. Which I you know. wasn't
0: even aware of, but it's fine. But now she knows.
1: <laughs> and I was like, where is she? And then one of our other friends also, I was like, they're both here, so they this must be where graduation is. Yeah. So I quickly ran across campus. Their yeah. little dots.
0: How many, I how many locations do you have? People trust you. A lot. Anna. A lot. She might have your location. You might want to double check. You might want to double check.
1: (laughs) It's great, you know. But my mom, she's the real location tracker. She's always like, I saw you went to the gym yesterday. And I'm
2: like Wow.
1: Okay, mom (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so yeah. Only share your location with those you trust. Correct. Thank you. And share boom with anyone.
0: With everyone, yeah. Everyone.
1: Yeah. You don't mm-hmm. even have to
0: trust them to share. You brook. don't. You don't. You don't have to trust them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We had so, so much fun.
0: Thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory, and Peter Washington. He awesome was also a graduate. And because he, he was wearing his Hawaiian lei oh. because he accepted a position as a professor at the University of Honolulu. So he was repping that. So shout out to Peter. Shout out to
1: Peter. If Boom needs more music, it sounds like we've got to go to
0: Hawaii. Yeah. And you're all invited. <laughs> you're all invited to help us make some <laughs> new Boom
1: music. <laughs> If you'd like to submit a research fail, someone you'd like to hear interviewed, get involved like you'd like to do an interview yourself, you can email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at biomechanics, O-O-M. And make sure to check out our Boom YouTube channel as well. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics Biomechanics Off Our minds. Minds.